Welcome to the Law Firm Growth Podcast, where we share the latest tips, tactics, and strategies for scaling your practice from the top experts in the world of growing law firms. Are you ready to take your practice to the next level? Let's get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Jan Roos, and I am here with a very exciting guest in Melissa Houston. So Melissa has an awesome story that I want to dig into a little bit, but she is a financial advisor for CEOs. So for anyone who's a solo, who's been, and again, this is something that's a little bit hard to admit, but if you're that person, you know who you are, a little trouble with the finances, a little behind on things, want to get right and honestly build a platform because there's no success in business without success personally. Uh, I think this is going to be a fascinating episode. So thank you so much for taking the time to come on, Melissa. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I am so excited to be here today. Yeah. Awesome. And then, you know, we had a little, a really fun pre-chat and I want to kind of continue with that. But like one of the things I was talking about, so you focus on something that I've experienced personally. I know in your story, which we'll get into in a little bit, you've experienced personally, but why do you think we find it so common that small business owners find themselves in trouble when they're behind on things and they end up owing a bunch of money, whether it's back taxes or debts or that kind of thing? Why is it so easy for small business owners? Why do we see it so often? Oh, I mean, that is definitely a great question and it can go in so many different ways. I mean, financial management for a lot of business owners is overwhelming. Uh, Money is the most emotionally charged topic I think there is out there and everybody carries a money story. So for business owners to not only get into business, they're carrying money stories, but they're also feeling like, okay, I started a business, but I clearly don't know what I'm doing in the money aspect and they end up feeling a lot of shame and guilt. And that's just so unnecessary because you ideally, if you went to school, you focused on your education and whatever you do well. So for, for lawyers, obviously you focused on law and I have a couple of lawyer clients who come to me and they're like, I should know better. Like I'm a lawyer. I should know this. And they feel so much shame and embarrassment. But the thing is, you studied your craft. You didn't study to manage a business, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure, well, I'm not, you could probably confirm this instead of me, but do they teach you how to run a business in law school? Oh, no. I mean, that's also the point of like, it's like a trope. Like I have a a lot of friends who open up their podcasts with saying, oh, you know, you know, they don't teach you how to run a business in law. They (laughs) sure don't. So they're not going to teach you how to manage your money. Right. And it becomes this thing of fear rather than something that they can embrace and really learn from and grow from because there's a lack of resources out there to show them how to do it. Yeah. Well, it's kind of interesting. I can definitely like relate to like, you know, I'm thinking back to like college days, like, you know, when I knew I had a big night out, like I didn't want to check, like, you know, I was taking out some cash in the ATM, (laughs) check balances, no thanks. Yeah. (laughs) We're just going to blindly take that money out and have a good time. (laughs) Yeah. And then, you know, God forbid you got payroll or like, you know, your office rent and that kind of stuff. Like, you know, the numbers just get bigger and bigger, don't they? They really do. Especially in the first couple of years of starting your law firm, right? Like you have so many startup expenses. They're the most expensive years in the beginning and you're trying to acquire your client list and grow your business and such. There's so many competing priorities that it just seems so natural for people not to think about what's going on in their finances when they really should. That's definitely the area that they really need to focus on so that they don't create too much debt. Okay. Gotcha. Now I have a feeling that a lot of people are coming to you a little bit too late, (laughs) but you know, for people that are getting started out, when do you think is the right time to start focusing on this stuff? You know what? I'll have to say it's never too late. Like Mm -hmm. I don't care where you are in your business. If you find you're needing help, you need to get help. But ideally once you start generating the sales, 
that's when you need to come get the help to manage your money. Because once you've got that money coming in, then you can start focusing on how to manage it, how to grow your business, how to reinvest profit into your business so that you can grow. There's all sorts of things that you can do with managing your money at that point that, you know, you may, you'll benefit a lot earlier from than doing it later. Okay. Gotcha. Now I'm, I actually really appreciate that you say that too, Melissa, because like one of the things too, and I'll say like kind of a counterpoint to that, like the, so you said, you know, get your, you know, get your sales coming in first. Cause I've had situations where like, I feel like these people wouldn't be seeking you. <laughs> like the situation where the person's got like the dashboard of a fortune 500 company set up and they have nothing in their checking account because they haven't talked to a single client. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I get that a lot too. Oh, interesting. But yeah. um, yeah, as far as kind of like getting the thing too. So like, let's say we have somebody coming in with like, so you know, where it's like, you know, a good jumping off point. Like, where do you usually recommend people get started on this? Because I, I know it's like, it's such a all encompassing kind of thing, you know, potentially finances for your business and your life. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so you know, what do you really recommend people get started? Well, when I start working with clients, the first thing that I talk to them about and get an idea of where they're at is in their mindset. Mm -hmm. So they need to know why they're in business. They need to know if they have any money blocks that are holding them back from making those sales. They need to understand what their financial goals are and ensure that the financial goals that they've put in place are, they reflect their values, right? Because if, if you don't have value related financial goals, you're, you're just not like, you're going to have a source of friction within yourself, right? So once they get clear on their financial goals and what they want to accomplish in their lives, and, and it's a, it's a, you know, a five to 20 year outlook, you know, like if, if you're working so that you can have a comfortable retirement, it's really good to have that goal at the outset of your business rather than thinking about it 20 years into your business. Right. Mm. So then once you, you know, create your financial goals and you have an idea of where you want to take your business, we work on what accountants call creating an operating forecast. So it's a 12 month forecast. And then there's also like a five-year forecast and beyond. But we really focus on the 12-month forecast because what that does, and I, I like to call that is creating a financial plan for your business because that outlines, you know, where like your revenue is going to be coming from, how much revenue you need to make per month because it's broken down, you know, in each for each month. And then you also account for all the expenses that are going into creating this revenue. So all your business expenses are outlined in your operating budget as well. And then you have an idea of what your profit is. So if you're not making a profit after you put all those numbers in, that's when you, you know, it's time to get down to business mm -hmm. and you have to make sure, first of all, I always advocate this for people because this is so common where business owners sort of like forget about paying themselves. So right. I make sure that they put their salary into that forecast and it's an obligation for them to make. And then, so once you've got all your expenses laid out, you've got your revenue coming in. If you're short on funds to cover, you know, all your expenses, you're going to have to look, where can I cut expenses? Where do I increase revenue? You find that nice balance. You know, you don't want to just hit the break-even point. You want to, you know, make a profit. So once you do that, you've got your 12-month forecast laid out. Then what happens is this is the really valuable stuff where each month you're going to look at what you actually produced against what your plan was. And then you realize, oh, this is where I came short, or this is where I overspent. And we're going to fix that before it becomes a problem. And I'm not going to ignore it. Right. Mm -hmm. So then you can fix problems earlier. You see any issues that become, you know, relevant and are maybe, you know, eating into your profit margins or whatever. And then, you know, it keeps you on the path of 
financial prosperity. You know, like you're always aiming to have that profit. You can either reinvest that profit into growing your business, or you can decide, okay, I'm at the level of the business where I want to be. And I want to withdraw that profit and build my net worth. So it's entirely up to the business owner. Yeah. I got to say this too, because it's like, I feel like a lot of people just end up facing these numbers once a year when it's time to like, you know, file with their accounts and put taxes in. And, you know, by that time, if you've got a problem that showed up on, you know, January 1st, like good luck. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm so glad you brought that up because, you know, when I was working in public accounting, that, that really was the problem that I kept seeing was that, you know, that's typically your relationship with your accountant where, you know, you may have a bookkeeper who's doing your books, but you take your books annually to your accountant, they do their corporate tax return or however you're structured. And they may give you a bit of advice and that's it till the next year. But that's not very valuable. And accounting is so much more valuable than just doing that. Mm. There's so much information that you can get from your numbers. And that's why I really try to teach business owners how to do that. So they understand on a day-to-day basis, the financial health of their business, where they're at. And when you know your numbers in your business, then you're making confident business decisions, right? Because every decision that you make, you are impacting your bottom line, which is your profit. Hmm. So if you're making decisions, not understanding how you're impacting your profit, then essentially it's the equivalent of driving blindly, right? Right. So knowing your numbers allows you to see what's going on in your business, allows you to get to know your business on an intimate level and make confident business decisions. Yeah. So I want to kind of step out and and play devil's advocate for anyone who's in the crowd that's having this thought right now. What about the people who say, look, I don't know what my numbers are going to look like next month, let alone 11 months from now. How do you kind of reconcile that with having something that's usable in that kind of a situation? Because I'm sure that, that comes up a lot. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a fair question. And the idea is when you give your money a direction or you give your business a direction, then you've got goals that you're working for, right? So life is life. And sometimes, you know, you may have forecasted that you're going to make X amount of dollars and you fell short. And that's just what happened. But when you've got that information and you're well aware that that's what happened, it allows you to dig into the issue a little further and ask yourself, why did that happen? And what can I do to prevent that or correct that? Is there something going on? Is there information I can take from this story and learn from it so I can change the direction for next month? Right. So it's less of a crystal ball, more of like a thermostat, right? Like if you're behind, you know what you got to do. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a GPS. You know, you set it, you want to go to this place and, you know, sometimes you get a little lost on the way, but you always find your way back on the path. Yeah. And it's way better than just going like <laughs> west and just seeing where the road takes. Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> go. Okay. So I want to loop back a little bit into something that I thought was really, really interesting. So let's talk about money blocks. Something that we've seen, and eh, this, this kind of happens. Okay. I'll tell you this. I actually had this conversation this morning. So uh, we're talking with somebody who was looking to get into our estate planning program and he had never done an estate plan before. He was looking to move uh, at it from another practice area. And I said, look, I don't think it's a good idea to invest into marketing on this because I'll tell you this because we've seen it before. You're going to get in the consultation room. You just made this ally for marketing. You're going to be sweating like <laughs> uh, I'm, <laughs> this is, sweating bullets. I'm just going to say this. This is my fun. You're Canadian, right? Yeah. Okay. I had a good friend who goes, he's sweating like a pervert in church. <laughs> but uh, anyways, I'll, I'll try to get this deal done. And that's anxious energy and people don't usually do it. Like, and again, at the end of the day too, then you look back at the marketing expense. Well, shoot, should I be doing estate planning in the first place? But one of the things you were talking about is not having the gusto to close the sale, not having the confidence. 
related to money blocks as well. So like, I think this is kind of a more tactical example, but we've absolutely seen people who have every single process in place that still find a way to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory, probably because some stuff related to money blocks. So what are some common money blocks that you see in people that, you know, prevent them from really getting on the the horse for this stuff or, or getting where they want to be? Definitely in those situations, I would say there's a lot of fear of success. Interesting. Yeah, it's very interesting because people, you know, and their money stories, especially with women and, you know, I hate to sound stereotypical, but that's typically where you would see it. But men are definitely not immune to it as well is, you know, the amount of money that you make for some people, they tie it to the self-worth. Mm-hmm. And if you've got that type of block where it's like, I don't feel good enough about myself, so therefore I don't deserve to make this kind of money, it will show up in the weirdest places. Yeah. Like, for example, like when I first started my business, I, you know, dealing with money for 20 years and always advising people, you know, like charge what you're worth, go for it, you can do it, you know, all that stuff. I firmly believe that I held that my own belief, you know? And then when I started selling, I'm like, oh my God, there's something holding me back and I don't know what's going on. And so thankfully I recognized it because I'm very self-aware and I I got a mindset coach to work with me for a couple of sessions. And it was these attitudes that my parents had about salespeople and people selling to them. Interesting. And yeah, and it, it was caring with me because they hated so much to be sold to that I felt that the people that I was trying to help, and essentially that's what we're doing is we're helping people solve problems, but it felt sleazy to me because I carried those mindset issues. Yeah. Would you say parents are a, like a pretty common theme as far as these money blocks? Huge, huge. Yeah. Most people carry their money stories from their childhood, right? Mm-hmm. So like your earliest money memories. So if you grew up in a situation where your parents were always fighting about money and money was a very stressful topic, chances are you're going to carry that type of financial stress into your adulthood. There's other things like if, you know, friends or neighbors had said at a very young age, well, if you have a lot of money, you must be a jerk. I get that one a lot too. Mm -hmm. Other ones where if there was always debt in the family, then they would carry debt into their adult years as well. So, I mean, we're easily so impressionable at at such a young age and we, you know, we're sponges at that age and we take in all this information of our surroundings and we get these ideas about what people with money are like. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you carry them for so many years. Sometimes you don't even realize that you're doing it. Yeah, no, it's pretty crazy too. And I'll also say this too. I find that, you know, just again, uh, you know, some of the people listening to this podcast may know this because I feel like we have a a pretty introspective group, but you know, in general, attorneys at at large, it's like they're they're hyper-rational people. So Mm -hmm. they can make the rationalizations in their own mind. They never realize what the, the blocks behind those rationalizations happen to be. And then you can you come up with a, with a straight answer for the question, nine ways till Sunday, but you know, you never take a step out to really look at these things. And that's, what's really dangerous too. Cause I'll say this, like one of the things that I take from that is, well, there's two sides to that, right? So you have the, whatever baggage that you're carrying from your parents, but if you want to have kids, you got to solve that for them, not only for you. Yes. Yes. That's so true. And also it's just like, I think people get into the law to make money. So I think a lot of the times that people come into this and especially if people are coming from big law where they had a huge salary, but it's like, what's the motivation to get into the career in the first place, right? A lot of the times it's coming from a place of lack. Yeah. And, you know, another interesting statistic that I've seen, because I work with a lot of professionals and I read up on, you know, I stay current in the news. And one thing, like one trend that we're seeing is high income earners, are typically more inclined to create 
like a huge amount of debt. Interesting. Yeah. And the increase of usage for payday loans, which are the absolute worst type of debt to get into, are high income earners. That's wild. So what do you think is, yeah, what do you think is behind that? I can really like speak from my own experience, you know, being a high income earner myself and my motivation, I'm not going to lie. My motivation to, to get my CPA was definitely, you know, to have doors open for me and to get into the higher income status. And, you know, my husband and I, when we first met and got married and stuff, we always had a financial plan. We always talk about money, you know, very healthy when it came to money. But at some point in my career, I started feeling a lot of dissatisfaction at the time. I didn't really realize that like, it took years after my my whole story to understand this is where I was coming from. But at the time I was having these, you know, feelings of being dissatisfied in my job and just not really loving it. And, you know, then I'm thinking, well, you know, I make a lot of money. I should be able to spend it. It's, you know, like maybe my job's not great, but my surroundings should be great. So like I would buy like expensive clothes and I, I just catapulted into like spending money, spending money, spending money, just trying to make myself feel better. And I ended up into my own situation where I accumulated like $100,000 worth of debt. And, you know, being a high income earner, it's not as damaging to us because, you know, if you've been good with your money at some point or because you make a large sum of money, paying it back is painful, but it's not like it's not like making less money. Right. So for me, it was like a reward. Was like, okay, I worked so hard in my life and now I'm feeling dissatisfied and I just want to reward myself with all this material stuff. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, and then some level too, it's like there's there's you know two ways off the 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 treadmill, right? It's like one is like would be the introspection and taking yourself out of it. Two is running up against that crazy debt and having no choice but to pay it back. So, you know, you're you're going from steak to hamburger in either way, right? But basically, sometimes the time too, and like this is the thing for anyone who who's like, yeah, like you know, I want to I was I was gearing up for a you know big left brain kind of podcast. It's like it's really important to get to this stuff too, because it does have it it works its way into the dollars and cents, no matter how well you have that stuff buttoned up. Exactly. I mean, look at me, like I'm a CPA for, you know, at that point, probably 16, 17 years. And I managed to blow through all this money, even though I knew I was doing it. And when I was doing it, I knew it was wrong, but I still did it. Mm -hmm. So there's definitely a lot of emotions that are tied with money. Like I said earlier, like money is a very emotionally charged subject, right? Mm -hmm. And for us, you know, whether you're a lawyer, doctor, accountant, whatever, if you've gone through that extra layer of education to get yourself into the higher income earning brackets, there's a little bit of self-entitlement there as well. Yeah. So what would you recommend for people to get started in in kind of like, you know, doing the work and and really looking inwards on this stuff? Like what's the best way to get started with that? Yeah, definitely get coaching. I mean, that to me is the ultimate thing because coaching is just taking the problem, looking at it and saying, Hey, okay, how are we going to resolve this? What's going on? And, you know, being proactive and starting to learn. I mean, there's a lot of money mindset coaches out there who, you know, talk about, and, you know, I'm, I'm sure they, they have a place to serve people. And if they're doing great things, that's great. But they talk a lot about the law of attraction. And if you wish it, you know, it'll come to you and all that stuff. And I believe in law of attraction to a certain degree, right? I don't believe that if you're going to wish $10 million, it's just going to land miraculously in your lap, right? Mm. So when you're dealing with your mindset, you have to look at, you know, things in a reasonable, pragmatic way, but also take the action. This is where the money mindset coaches don't go, right? It's understanding the steps you need to do to get your finances in order. 
it's not just about money mindset. It's about understanding the steps that you need so that you can create a financially abundant life, but also financial security for yourself. So when you're talking about your personal finances, you know, there's, I talk about there's seven stages that you really need to make sure that you've addressed in order to be financially bulletproof, so to speak. But as business owners, so as lawyers, you you have so much opportunity to create more money and your business will likely be your biggest financial asset, right? Mm -hmm. So as you're building the wealth in your business, you are also building your personal net worth because you own your business. So understanding and making that connection, how your business can contribute to your personal finances is huge. Yeah. You just teed me up for a perfect segue. So I think basically just kind of like put a bow on top of the mindset stuff for anyone who's, who's gotten this far and is like, yeah, I don't really need to be able to do the mind, mindset stuff. If you get through the stuff that's technical and you don't have the mindset stuff, you're going to wind up in that position sooner or later, most likely. Yeah. But once you have the mindset stuff, now we can get into some, some tactical stuff. So let's, um, let's get started. So, you know, uh, I don't know if you're, if you're open to talk to this, but, um, you know, I love the idea of the seven stages. Let's talk about that for a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. So the first stage is to create yourself a personal budget, right? Mm-hmm. You need to understand that what you're bringing in, you are spending less than what you're bringing in. Everybody needs to live within their means, even millionaires. And I actually had this amazing interview with a millionaire not too long ago where she admits to me, like she still manages her money. She creates a budget because more money, more problems, right? You know, like it's like the higher you get in your income brackets, the more you want type of thing. So the first key is always live within your means. The second step is if you do have debt, you need to make a debt repayment plan. So even if you have debt for your business that you funded through your personal accounts, or you funded through other ways, you need to get that debt down. Nobody ever gets rich by carrying debt. Carrying debt costs a lot of money. And then the third step is to ensure that you've got an emergency cash reserve in place. So especially as entrepreneurs, because, you know, chances are you don't have insurance for illnesses. And if you do, well, that's great. But if you don't, there's always going to be some type of emergency that comes up. So the recommended amount is, you know, to get you through three to six months of expenses in like a high interest savings account type of thing. Somewhere you you keep that money somewhere where it's liquid so you mm-hmm. can have quick access to it. And then the fourth step is ensuring that you've mitigated your risks through having the proper insurance coverage, right? So you want to think about life insurance should anything ever happen to you. You think about having a will in place. You think about disability insurance, critical illness insurance, those types of things, right? So making sure that should something happen to you as the biggest income earner, like you are the biggest asset because you earn your income regularly. So protect that, make sure that, you know, you've got the insurance in place. And then you look at your investment opportunities, understanding how to invest that extra money that you have, you know, whether it's through rental properties, stock purchases, you know, investment portfolios, the whole gamut, really take a good look, understand what's going on for investment strategies and being informed so that you don't just hand off your finances to like, if you're using a financial advisor, You don't just hand off your money. That's the worst mistake you can do because people take advantage of that. Right. Mm -hmm. It's sadly, it's true. And did you hear the story about Dane Cook? Uh, No. Do you know? Do you know know Dane Dane Cook? Cook Yeah. 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 So he trusted all his finances. Oh, his brother, right? Yes. Yes. I might've heard it vaguely, but yeah, for anyone who hasn't. Yeah. But uh, tell that story again for the, for listeners. Yeah. So he gave all his money to his 
to his brother. He trusted his brother. He said, okay, here, invest all my money. I, I don't like money. I'm no good with numbers. And it turns out that his brother stole all his money. So he he was flat broke. And the reason why he found out about it was because he was moving from state to state. I can't remember the exact legal legalities of it. And he needed to move his business. And as he moved his business, it was uncovered that he had no money. Yeah. That's so insane. that's super important. Yeah. So there's the retirement planning. That's mm. step six. Mm. And step seven is if you have a house, pay it off, pay off that mortgage. Mortgage is still, even though the interest rates are super low right now, if that's the only debt that you're carrying, I mean, if there are some financial strategies, they're advanced, but in some cases it makes more sense to invest your money than pay off the mortgage. But if interest rates start going up, you really need to pay off that mortgage because that is a huge money suck as well. Right. Okay. So that all sounds awesome. And I want to kind of throw a little bit of a curveball in the mix, which is where do we prioritize when, when somebody's going from like a sole producer to somebody who's owning a business, how does that kind of work into the mix? So personal fund, you know, I've, I've, I've seen, I've heard pieces of advice from, from people who are like, you know, we, you want to have two and a half X monthly expenses for the business. So if somebody has an overflow of cash, how do you recommend people prioritize one versus the other? Yeah, absolutely. So when you're planning your business and you're getting started, I mean, the reality is, you know, you're usually short on cash. So I always suggest to clients when life is going well, so which means when business is going well, that's the best time to apply for a line of credit for your business Mm -hmm. because no bank is going to give it to you when you are in need, right? Mm -hmm. So set yourself up, have cash reserves in place. So as you're earning profit, as time goes on, you want to make sure that you park that cash somewhere so it's easily accessible. So when you've got bills coming in, like payroll and you know big bills, you have the cash to cover it. But there are you know plenty of times where there's you know cash shortages and people are struggling. That's why I always recommend having that line of credit set up. If you are unable to do that because your business is too new, which happens quite often, banks don't want to you know just hand out lines of credit. You know you. Usually, like what typically happens with business owners is they have to borrow from themselves, Mm. right? So just make sure that if you're borrowing from yourself, you're not putting your personal life at risk, your personal finances, and keep clean records of that. Yeah. And um, fill me in a little bit more about that because that's not something that I'm super familiar with. And I don't know if maybe some some other people in the, the audience might not be super familiar. So how does one set up a situation where they borrow from themselves? Okay. So if you've got a line of credit or you're able to tap into like a home equity line of credit, whatever that you're using, you set it up as your personal expense, right? Mm -hmm. But what happens is when you've got a corporation or even like if you're not incorporated, if you're just self-employed, you can still use this account. It's called a shareholder account. And you record the transactions through the shareholder account to ensure that you are able to pay your yourself off should something happen to your business, right? Mm. So essentially what it is, it's money that the business is borrowing against you mm. so that you can pay yourself back tax-free. Okay, gotcha. Okay, so and this would be like, as opposed to just like, you know, a business checking account, but like if you're already paying taxes on it, that should be something that, you know, you should have in a shareholder's account type thing. So if like it would show up as like an owner's investment if you had to put it back in the business or something like that, right? Exactly. Because you definitely want to pay yourself if you're if you're borrowing like from your personal line of credit or something like that, right? 
you definitely want to pay yourself back at some point through your business. But it's risky though, because that's how people get into the situation where they leave the business and the house and that kind of stuff, right? It's risky, but unfortunately for a lot of business owners, it's the only option that they have. Yeah. And I guess like when things are tight, you know, uh, any port in a store, right? but in general, like what kind of recommendations do you make for people when like things aren't really lining up? And I guess this is good. Zooming all the way back, probably 15 minutes as far as like the, you know, let's say that we're, we're, someone's working against their 12 month plan. So like, where do you start to recommend people look if let's say they have a profit shortfall from something that they were looking to hit on their 12 month plan? Income statements. Income statements are the most used financial report any small business owner will use. So what an income statement is, is it adds up all your revenue, less all your expenses, and that'll show you if you've got a profit or loss, but it's for the same time period, right? So Mm -hmm. if you use an income statement just on a monthly basis, like let's say, I don't know, we're not, we'll we'll say September's closed. Mm -hmm. So you run your income statement from September 1st to September 30th, and you look at all the revenue that came in and you look at all the expenses that went out. And this is why I always recommend doing that financial plan, right? Because this is what essentially you're doing every month. You're looking at what happened and where you can improve things. So if you've blown, let's say your advertising budget or your consulting budget, or maybe you brought in a new employee and they're not producing as much as they should, these are the things that you're going to pick up by looking at your income statement and seeing how some things are out of whack than others. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of things that you can do in your business where if you're specifically reporting on different projects that you're working on. So for different clients, if you have your bookkeeper code them, you can see how much time and money you're spending on clients to produce, like, I don't know, go through your client files and stuff. And you can see if your client is bringing you a profit or if they're eating away at your profits. Yeah. I think that's something a lot of people don't think about too. Like, you know, we have, we've had a couple of solo podcasts on like nightmare clients and stuff. And, you know, the emotional drain is one thing, but there's people where you have a situation where you're literally underwater for serving somebody, which is a place. Yeah. That, <laughs> and it's it, tough that's to killing see your things. business. Yeah. yeah. And I know like for something, and, and this is something too. So I'll just kind of use myself as an example. So at Casefield, we've got a bookkeeper. I actually checked out the, the income statement on the regular, but you know, we're a little bit larger than some people are smaller than others. What's the evolution of how people get access to this information? Because I'm sure there's a stage where like, okay, you start off, maybe somebody's doing this on weekends when they can get it. But what point do you hire a bookkeeper? What time do you have an account? How, what time do you insource an accountant? Like, what do you usually recommend for people? And like, I guess, and, and what, you know, is it a time thing? Is it a revenue thing? How does, you know, what is, uh, how do you recommend people getting, you know, control over these numbers and having somebody to, to, to handle this for them? Yeah, that's a really good question. And the earlier, the better is always the answer, right? Because you don't want to be going to a professional when the problems already hit, you Mm. know, and hit the fan, however you want to say it. Yeah. So the great thing right now is that there's the fractional CFO that has become very popular in the accounting world, right? Have you heard of the fractional CFO? I've seen the term come across here and there. Okay. So for lawyers, especially like for law firms who are making, you know, multiple six figure hitting seven figure and beyond, this is a really important tool for them to use. And what a fractional CFO is, is a highly educated. So usually they're CPA 
And, you know, they've got minimum 10 years of experience. So they're the highest person that you could hire in a finance department. But for law firms and other, you know, smaller type businesses, you don't have the funds or the need to have a full-time CFO on staff. So fractional CFOs are brought in and typically they come with bookkeeping and, or you can outsource your bookkeeper, you do, you structure it however you want, but it's easier to have a fractional CFO that comes in, they, they have the bookkeeping in-house and you meet with your fractional CFO once a month to go over these numbers. Everything that I was talking to you about, you can hire a CFO to guide you through this. And then at the end of the year, they can have your taxes completed as well. So you've got that full cycle. You've got that person that's working with you from beginning to end. I always recommend the outsourcing for the taxes, depending on where you live, like what country, what state, province, whatever. And it's always good to have some sort of outsourcing at some point to have like another professional look at, look at your work, the other person's work, because it's like an internal control thing. Right. And this is what, yeah, this is what happens a lot with smaller businesses because you kind of touched on it as well. Like, you know, at some point you've got different you know, you grow and different people have access to different information. You really have to be aware of your internal controls within your, your firm, because you want to make sure that you've protected your asset from, unfortunately, fraud or, or theft. There's definitely ways you can protect yourself from that. Yeah. It's kind of interesting too, because it's like, I mean, if nothing else, even just like not paying attention one day, I'm like, I know, you know, generally speaking, <laughs> uh, you know, CPAs are known for their attention to detail, but like, you know, if there's something that's slipping and it's not accounted, it's a lot harder for that to slip by two people into one. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And there's two. no such thing as a perfect person. Yeah. Well, the other thing too, is like a lot of times, like, I'm definitely the kind of guy where I'm like, look, just do it. I'm not going to like, I'm like... <laughs> Yeah. Like I haven't kept a receipt and uh, the IRS might be listening. I'm lying. That was a joke. Um, but, uh, but anyways, yeah, no, it's like, you know, I could be bothered with this stuff sometimes too. I'm a top line guy, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah. And that's the frustration for a lot of professionals as well. They're like, I don't have time for this. Yeah. Okay. But so basically you've got somebody. And then as far as kind of this fractional CFO thing is like, I can understand this too. Cause it's like, you know, like the people who are like CFOs, they could be making you know six figures well into the six figures if they're working full time for somebody. And like, you know, unless you're John Morgan, it's, it's going to be kind of a tough to like find a person to do that. But like, as far as like, was <laughs> for somebody coming in with a, with a fractional CFO level, like what kind of an outlay would, would that be for most people do you think? It depends on the volume of transactions that are coming in. Mm -hmm. And like typically when I price my services, it's usually between 1500 to 6,000 per month, depending Mm -hmm. on not just the company, but like you're looking at the amount of revenue that's coming in and then the amount of work that you've been engaged for. Right. So it depends on so many different factors, but typically the advantage of having a fractional CFO is the fact that you don't have that extra employee on payroll it's well suited for your specific needs and they're there for you when you're in a crunch. Yeah. You get that strategic financial advice. Yeah. I would say too, like, it's interesting that you bring up the transaction thing too, because like, this is something that we, we kind of talk about as well too. And this might segue into another thing too, business models and how to get stuff that's profit. If you have a high volume business, which normally happens because people aren't charging enough, that actually becomes more expensive to run from an operational perspective. Because you know, mm-hmm. if, if you're charging uh, ten people a thousand dollars versus one person ten thousand dollars, and you know that's kind of your business model, you know it's, it's going to be more expensive at all levels of the process, right? 
Yeah. And that's why it's really important to also be familiar with your income statement, because if you have that problem, it's going to show up in your income statement and you're going to look at the pricing that you've got going on. And typically what you can do is learn, like calculate your break-even point. And then you, you benchmark what you want your profit margin to be against what, you know, most law firms are creating. And you make sure that you massage the, not massage the numbers, but like you just find that happy point where you're charging enough so that you're making the profit that you need. Okay. Gotcha. And yeah, can we keep that? Like, let's double click on that for a little bit. So how do you recommend law firms should be thinking about their pricing? That's going to depend a lot on your competition as well, right? So for the pricing, you don't want to outprice yourself so that you're unattainable to most and you're going to lose business, but you don't want to undervalue your services as well. So depending on the type of clients that you want, like that's why it's important to create that financial plan and get clear on what you're looking for, right? So if, if you want to run like a high-end law boutique, then boutique type firm, then it would make sense to charge more than your competitors because, you know, it's more of a white glove service and your clients are going to get better face-to-face time with you and, and whatever. But if you're offering a very generic, like, I don't know, let's say wills or even trademarks or whatever, a very generic service that it doesn't require a lot of attention, you just go through the motions and, and produce what the client needs, then you would want to remain competitive, right? Well, yeah, because this is the thing too, because like I've actually, uh, I'm a huge uh, Michael Porter fan, but like basically like this kind of like high, you know, premium versus like sort of like lower pricing type models. And the way that we kind of talk about it a lot internally is we do a lot of stuff with trust in the state's attorneys and like the people who are, it's, you know, I think about it as what's commodity, what's a monopoly. If you're doing wills to your example, right. And you're calling it wills, Right then you know why should somebody pay you at all? Why don't they just go on LegalZoom if it's just a document, right? The people that are charging the premiums, what they're doing is not necessarily like a, you know exchangeable with the people down the street. Like the people that, that we work with that charge the highest rates, it's like they have process that if it's not proprietary, at least it's marketed as something different, marketed as something special. And there is mm-hmm. the component for you know higher level of services and like you know the actual inputs being more expensive. But at the end of the day, there are things that kind of scale without value, uh, like the, that can increase the value without necessarily increasing the input. And this is just one of those weird things that <laughs> I can't help on things sometimes, so like just uh, based on like the market they do, but like all things equal. Yeah. It's like, you know, generally speaking, your profit numbers are going to be easier to hit when you have that higher individual ticket, right? Yeah, absolutely. High ticket is definitely the, the way to go if you're looking for high profit margins. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And then um, kind of like I'm um, singing back to like, I want to just uh, talk a little bit about like this very common problem that uh, I may or may not have personal experience with the commingling of business and personal finances. So <laughs> how do you recommend people? Cause like, you know, it's, it's kind of, I would say, you know, look, I haven't done the research, but I would say a fair amount of people start launching businesses using their personal account as their checking account. And then, you know, I'm sure there's another number of people that are using their business account as a personal account. So how do you recommend people get disentangled from uh, either of those issues? Yeah. The first thing you want to do is make sure that you've got a separate business account from your personal bank account, right? And if you are borrowing from your personal account for your business or vice versa, it goes back to what I was talking about, which I understand it probably lost a lot of people when I'm explaining it to you, is that shareholders account. So that is the important account that records how much you're borrowing from the business 
and or the business is borrowing from the personal account. So that should be the only thing going through, like touching on both accounts. Mm. Does that make sense? Because I really want to explain it in a way that it makes sense. Yeah. So basically like without that too, because it's like, I guess the default that some people do is they just have no idea what's going in. They have no idea. Yeah. They're just grabbing whichever bank card they know has a bank balance or a cash balance. Yeah. And now is this something that you set up as, is this like a, like a financial account in terms of your bookkeeping or is this a specific bank account or like, how does this work? Like, no. So this is done in your books, right? So your bookkeeper should, if your bookkeeper is not aware of what a shareholder account is, they should not be your bookkeeper. And that's (laughs) another thing that people have to be very aware of is you have to be very cautious of the bookkeepers that you hire. Cause if you're, you know, what I see quite often is people will hire the least expensive bookkeeper. Mm -hmm. And that usually ends up costing them at least twice the amount of money because what happens is this bookkeeper is not up to all the standards and they may not do the books accurately. So you take those books and you send them to your accountant at the end of the year and the accountant is stuck with the burden of trying to figure out what this bookkeeper has done. And then the CPA is going to charge you way more money to correct your books. And because CPAs are much more expensive than bookkeepers, they're going to charge you a lot more per hour. And in the end, you may have doubled your bookkeeping bill for the year. Yeah. No, it's a, sometimes, yeah, you, you quality costs less in a lot of ways. Absolutely. Yeah. So make sure that you make informed decisions when it comes to your bookkeeper. And so your bookkeeper would be able to, like, if you let them know, like, okay, I took $100 from the account, then they can do the journal entry to record it. But the thing is, you want to make sure, and this is really important because so many people don't do this is that what happens is if you're not recording it properly and the IRS comes in to do an audit for you and there's no substantial evidence that you have been borrowing money from your personal account and then when you pay it back, it looks like you're just paying your, your personal like account. So then they're going to charge you tax on that. They're going to treat that as taxable income in your personal account when it's not, but you didn't do the work to maintain your records to prove otherwise. Yeah. Yikes. Okay. So basically if anyone's still in that situation, they definitely got to figure out that stuff sorted out. If you're in that situation, you need to call me. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. That's awesome. And then um, just before we close out, like are any kind of like last things, like are any other, you know, uh, quick, quick tips as far as anyone, um, maybe mistakes that you see too often, like any, any little quick takeaways for anyone who's, uh, who's listening to the podcast? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the first one would definitely be what we touched on where you need to keep your business and your personal accounts completely separate. The second one would definitely be the mindset, you know, like if you're letting fear or shame or any sort of negative emotion holding you back from really understanding what's going on in your business and understanding your numbers, you really need to reach out and get some help because that fear and shame won't go away and your problems will just keep building and building and building instead of just dealing with it at once. And then the other issue I see a lot is so many business owners are thinking that if there is a cash balance in their bank account, then that must be mean they're doing well. And they want to spend that cash without really understanding what bills are coming in the pipeline or saving for their tax bills or what have you, right? So it's super important to understand that cash balance, it's not the same as having profit in your business. Okay. Super important. Okay. And I think that's a fantastic summary too, Melissa. So as far as like, you know, what's the best place for people to um, like, you know, what's the best way to get in touch if uh, people are interested in talking more about this? Absolutely. You can reach me at my, my main website, melissahoustoncpa.com. You can email me at info at melissahoustoncpa.com. I answer all my emails personally. 
And yeah, so. And then wait, you had, you had, yeah, you had a giveaway as well or two, right? Yes, I do. So if you're interested, you can download the five-step roadmap to biz finance freedom. And that is going to show you what you need to have, the five steps you need to have in place for your business finances to ensure that you've got a solid business financial foundation. Okay. Fantastic. Okay. Melissa, thank you so much. This has been a very wide ranging conversation. I've had a lot of fun, but yeah, no, I, we got a little bit of the, uh, the left brain, we got a little bit of the right brain, but I think it's, everything is super important to get in this. And if you can't think of a more, if you, if you can come up with a more important subject than <laughs> how much money you got in the bank, let me know, because I think <laughs> might be the bottom line, literally for most of the people here, but thanks again, Melissa. And for everyone else, uh, I will see you guys next Tuesday at 8 a.m. Eastern on the Law Firm Growth Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. For show notes, free resources, and more, head on over to casefuel.com slash podcast. Looking forward to catching up on the next episode.